Coming up on this week's show, the hottest social media platform comes to MS-DOS. A PS3 emulator that can boot every game. And updating your favourite games with James Sharp. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, quick question. Have you got a favourite King of Fighters character? You can check them all out in their book, The King of Fighters, The Ultimate History. Officially endorsed by SNK, this amazing 544-page book reveals the history of this much-loved fighter. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 360. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back in time to the golden age of video games. And of course, brings you up to speed on all the current happenings in the world of retro and brings you a very special guest on for an interview each week as well. Now, a quick reminder to myself here, Joe, I'm actually going to edit in the Xbox 360 startup sound. Just into the intro there, because you asked me to do that and I forgot to download it. So. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, we're going to miss a trick if we don't put the... Uh the the 360 uh noise in there the startup noise or something but <laughs> that's the one but is 360 retro because we're we're covering the ps3 oh god one of, of course it is of course it is but it's a weird console isn't it like 360 what an odd name that was like was it because of extreme sports or something i don't know we always thought like i don't i don't know where this came from but i remember me and my friends saying because it was an all-around console because it could play dvds and all this but so could have, like, the, the generation before could do that. So I, always I don't thought, know where that came from. You know, people used to put, like, 2000 in front of names. That's what oh, maybe the yeah. Xbox 2000 would have been cooler. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because, yeah, you're right. And particularly from the mid-90s onwards, everything was, like, 2K or 2000 to appear, like, next century. To me, like, seeing 2000 in front of something still sounds futuristic, even though it was, yeah, like, what, totally. 22, 23 years ago. <laughs> so, uh, Damn wood, 2000. <laughs> so, yeah, this is not an Xbox 360 episode, although, I mean, yeah, I think you opened a bit of a can of worms there, Joe. It does kind of feel like now, because, I mean, God, in, like, two years' time, the 360 would be 20 years old. So it does kind of feel like we're edging towards that being retro. I know, three, three years off that being 20 years old. We also last week, which we forgot to mention, celebrated our seven-year anniversary. And somebody actually commented on, I did a post on social media saying, like, we're seven years old. You know, thank you to everybody who stuck with us for those seven years. And somebody put, are you guys retro now? <laughs> so maybe another seven years and we will be. <laughs> I guess if uh, some... The way my back feels would suggest I am pretty retro. <laughs> if someone had a child and they called them the retro hour, they'd be seven years old now. God. Oh, wow. <laughs> Such a weird way to put it. <laughs> yeah, Joe tried to convince his wife. I she did. wasn't having that. I did. Yeah. So yeah, thank you very much. I think we're all still a bit hungover from Christmas last week. We completely forgot it was our birthday. But uh, yeah, seven years of doing this show, and uh, still it does feel like retro is just getting bigger and bigger every year that we do this. And uh, you know, there were some people that thought we'd maybe get ten episodes out of this, and then we'd we'd run out of guests. But in fact, we still keep getting on these amazing guests each week. And actually today is a very interesting one because um, we're kind of bridging, you know, kind of modern gaming and retro gaming with someone who's been responsible for bringing back and updating a lot of the classic games from back in the 80s and 90s to current platforms. Yeah, we're talking with James Shell, and this is a really interesting interview because, you know, 
back in the days you used to kind of distribute stuff with uh, cartridges and cases and manuals and all of those kind of things. But uh, digital distribution has become a huge area. And uh, James was actually the um, product marketing manager and VP of digital distribution at Sega. So mm. he was behind all of those kind of, you know, great titles that came out like uh, Sonic Mania, Sonic Generations, but also the uh, Total War series, which was really cool. He also worked at Amazon as well. So he was uh, in the games department at Amazon back in the days in some 90s uh, video game stores as well. So we have a bit of memories of like, you know, Virgin Games and stuff like that. But he's now working with... Uh, Secret Mode Limited, and they've actually just done Zool Redimensioned, which is a, mm. a, a kind of new take on the uh, old Zool world. And I love these kind of titles, like especially Sonic Mania and Generations. We know how well they went. And they were just complete like remakes, but in older style. You know, they were reimagined kind of versions of Sonic. Uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, and they brought kind of the classic gameplay back. And they, I've got to say, probably my, you know, the only two Sonic games I've probably really liked in the last 10 years. I mean, I did get hold of um, Sonic Frontiers for the Switch. I played it, it's all right. Modern Sonic, though, I don't know, they just don't seem to be able to get it right. But when they do the retro-inspired titles, like, I don't know if you guys played Generations, thought that was fantastic. And I know we're all big fans of Sonic Mania. So it's interesting that it just kind of feel like, you know, the, the retro titles are where they really do nail it. Well, Sega have been doing a lot of this. So, you know, he, he talks about Shenmue 1 and 2 as well. Um, yeah. You know, Company of Heroes, they were re-releasing. Uh, they've, they've been going back to a lot of their old brands and kind of bringing them up and having a, cute, a few updates, uh, like um, Castles of Illusion as well with uh, Mickey Mouse. I love the fact you mentioned that you worked at Virgin Megastore back in the day as well. Um, I'm interested in some memories about that. Yeah, Virgin Games were just, huge, you know. Yeah, I mean, I saw a picture on Instagram the other day, and I'd forgotten just how cool those shops were. Made me really nostalgic for it, you know, those classic 90s gaming shops. And uh, I actually, um, <laughs> we went to a gaming market in Nottingham, didn't we, just before Christmas? where we did um, a panel and then Joe and I had a wander around. I did my usual thing of buying old gaming magazines, you know, all the ones that I threw out about 10 years ago that I've started buying again. And inside one of those was some vouchers for Future Zone. Oh, yeah. Wow. Did you send them I off? I remember that. <laughs> but unfortunately, they expired in, uh, I think it was February 1994. Damn, so, you know, uh, you know what I think? I my luck. Like, Virgin do all the internet. Why don't they get some of their old game brands and then do a game streaming service on the Virgin internet? Yeah. It's like, you know, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so um, always love talking to people that worked in uh, game shops back in the day. So going to be a really interesting chat with our guest this week, James Shell. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Before that, let's hop into some of the big headlines from over the last week and uh, been lots of new stories coming out of CES. Now, of course, that was on over the weekend and, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the consumer electronics show where... It's not called that anymore. The, uh, it's just yeah. called CES, weirdly. Yeah, it used to stand for consumer yeah, electronics. Yeah, they just show, dropped that then. and now it just went for <laughs> CES. It's a weird move. Yeah, so uh, this is usually, though, where they show off the, the hot new hardware, but I think in recent years it does feel like there's been more retro stuff coming well, out. Well, also, there. there's been more tats. Like, before CES, <laughs> yeah. CES used to be, like, the huge show, and now Apple and people like that, they do their own kind of shows yeah. and their own launches. So CES is now weird products, tat, 
stuff like mind reading exercise bike <laughs> devices, you know, uh, strange stuff. But also, uh, yeah, like you said, retro games have started to find their way in there. Now, this was quite an interesting announcement that Atari, um, last week we were talking about how um, they'd cancelled their manufacturing contract, we'd heard, um, with the company that were making the Atari VCS, and we kind of speculated. Um, you said, I hope that doesn't put them off making any more consoles, and I was like, oh, it definitely will. <laughs> and then uh, as soon as we'd recorded that, um, an announcement came out that they're working with a company who are actually well-known for doing these kind of retro consoles. This is a company called my arcade have you and heard of like them Atari. before i i haven't you know i've heard of one up and stuff but i know there's lots of these little like kind of yeah arcade uh you know licensed devices out there and stuff i think i've seen some of the handhelds before i remember the gallagher one see i've not seen them in person i've just read about them online but yeah they're a company like that who basically they license various different games and collections they did like a, a data east mini arcade recently there's a street fighter 2 one um We've got a Gallagher one as well, a Pac-Man 40th anniversary player, Space Invaders one. So these are really all the same hardware, just, you know, different they, They've got some cool them. retro stuff as well. So they've got like um, actual cartridge converters and stuff and, uh, yeah. you know, stuff for the original consoles as well. Yeah, so they've been um, at CES over the weekend and... Apparently they've announced, uh, we've only got images of a couple of these, and the announcements admittedly are not that in-depth, but it looks like we're going to be getting three new systems um, that are made by MyArcade with Atari games and licensing on there, and it looks like these are part of the Atari 50 anniversary celebrations. Yeah, so like you said, there's going to be three. So there's the MyArcade Atari Micro Player, which is like, a, a, like you say, it's one of those kind of tabletop arcade machines like mini arcade machines. And, and like you say, nothing's really been announced other than mock-up images. Um, mm. So there's been no kind of like physical pictures of this or anything like that. And, you know, it kind of comes back to what Ravi was saying about like CES and how it's changed so much. Like back in the day, you would actually get like a prototype of this. You know, you would see like, you know, kind of like 3D print, not 3D printed, but 3D models of it and stuff, you know, actual physical models or an actual functioning prototype where it's all just images, isn't it, at the moment, Ravi? Yeah, um, and they seem like rendered. Uh, yeah. Looking at it, you know. Yeah. Just rendered images. So you've got the My Arcade Atari Micro Player, which is a tabletop arcade machine. The My- and to be fair, like I said, you know, they've made a lot of these cabinets. So yeah. literally, it's just going to be a case of putting the ROMs on, changing yeah, the Yeah, like, like, like re-skinning it, you know. Yeah. 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 So I, I can't see why that wouldn't come out. No. I mean, it you know, it makes sense that, you know, it's, it's an easy job. Yeah. And then there's the My Arcade Atari Pocket Player, which is a little bit kind of like the Evercade, you know, one of these little handhelds, you know, kind of two buttons with a start and select button and a D-pad. Like you say, something they've made a lot of in the past. Yeah. And then the last one, which is the only thing that's actually been acknowledged by Atari, the only one that they've actually like retweeted themselves on social media and stuff, is the GameStation Plus. The My Arcade Atari Game Station Plus, which is the one which does, to be fair, look really nice. It's a, yeah. I guess, a modern take of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I like don't what you- like the joysticks; they look really weird. They look <laughs> like um, e-cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, they do actually. Now you say that, but the, I think it looks like what you would have thought the Atari Twenty Six Hundred would look like in the future. Yeah. It's a weird name in as the well, 70s, isn't yeah. it? Game Station, because those are the devices that, you know, Ashen's reviews, um, which usually there's cheap Chinese knockoffs. Um, or it was a shop. We're talking about game shops. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a game station. Yeah, yeah. So, 
you know, there there really isn't much information about them. It's all speculation. Um, Atari have clarified that the game station will have 26, 2,600 games and 7,800 games in Atari arcade games. I initially just looking at these, like they all say Atari 50 on them and stuff, I thought it was going to have the game, the Atari 50, on them. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Like, it's going to have, like, all those games from the Jaguar and stuff like that on them. But yeah. speculation, I know it's all very much speculation, but these kind of, like, micro-player arcades and pocket players, they tend to only have, like, 10 to 20 games on them. You know, we obviously, they've not announced anything like that yet, but I've got a feeling it isn't going to be Atari 50 or running on these. No, my, I, I think that, you know, licensing, they've probably just said, okay, yeah, go ahead. And then the, the guys have paid a fee and yeah, then yeah. that'll be it. Just like with the Atari collection on the Evercade, you know, yeah. it would have just been a simple move. They do that and then manufacturing happens. The same with like the hotel and all of the other kind of mad stuff that Atari <laughs> were just that. licensing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the difference. I mean, the, the VCS console, you know, the, the VCS 2020, having a lot of people refer to it online, was something that Atari actually themselves were manufacturing. Yeah. Whereas this, you're right, my arcade are making the hardware. Um, so it means, you know, I guess there's no kind of risk to Atari. But I did say last week when I was talking about, you know, the fact that they're saying that they're not making any more of the, the Atari VCS 2020s, that it would be a good idea if they just did like a an Atari 2600 mini console, mm. which I know there's been attempts at, you know, the flashbacks and stuff in the past, but actually this um, Game Station Plus does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? Something that's probably going to hook up to, I mean, I'm pretty certain it's going to have HDMI out. It looks like it's got... It looks um, like a Steam wireless. Link kind of in, in size and scale. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a small little Or like a battery probably, pack, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't know how big it's... I mean, looking at the joysticks next to it, if they're the same kind of size as the original... 2600 joysticks it's shown with them it looks like there's two wireless joysticks um with a couple of extra buttons looks like they've got a trigger on the on the stick as well Mm. and a button on top of them too it looks like the three button joysticks and then a few um little buttons on the on the back of it that that i guess is going to be for kind of going to the home screen selecting different games and then on the hardware itself i mean it kind of looks like the size of maybe a dvd case maybe a bit smaller yeah and that kind of form factor though and then you've got what appears to be a power button on the top and a home button so, and the Atari logo kind of recessed in silver on the side of it. So I've got to say, I mean, you know, design-wise, I think it looks really nice and um, definitely a nice way to play the classic Atari game. So it does feel like this is just a, a kind of very cool-looking mini console, really. Yeah, I think this is cool. And, like, you know, Atari have done this for years, haven't they? Like, I don't know how many yeah. collections of remastered Atari titles I've bought um, through different consoles and Steam and stuff like that. But um, I've never heard of this company before. So if any of the listeners have actually yeah, had a, an experience with them, um, drop in the comments. Because you had a flashback, didn't you? Um, what, yeah. what was it like? I've got one. I mean, I've got to say, I'm not the biggest kind of aficionado of, you know, old school Atari games. I felt like they ran all right on that. You know, it was uh, just kind of what you'd expect, really. It was a a cheap kind of device. I mean, you know, 2,600 games are not the most demanding yeah, in yeah. the world. And I wrong, saw them so everywhere, like, to be fair. Like, yeah. they were on sale in, in shops all over and everything. Yes, I mean, you know, it did the job if you want to play 2,600 games. Um, personally, they don't really hold my attention all that well. Atari 2600 games, I feel like they're just a little bit too simplistic. I did get the um, Atari 50 collection. And for me, I mean, you know, there's some Jaguar games on there um, that run really nicely. Obviously, I've got a Jaguar original and the original games. But for me, the, the, the appeal of having the Atari 50 collection 
was the the bonus movies that were on there as well and the little mini documentaries and and the way it was presented there's a lot of like artwork and concepts and stuff in there as well so that really felt like a nice celebration of you know classic atari up until the mid 90s whereas just having a device that's going to play like missile command and pong for me, doesn't really hold all that, all that much interest, if I'm honest. Say that and you'll get it next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah my, my wife will be ordering it now for my yeah. birthday. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it does look a cool little device. I mean, the speculation is that this is literally going to be, you know, we're, I think most people are quite excited about the Game Station Plus over the other ones. Um, but I've got a feeling, you know, that there's an article on Retro Dodo where they're saying, you know, they don't think it's going to have the storefront on there that the VCS 2020 has, you know, you're probably not going to be able to download yeah, games. Yeah, even if it. you did have the storefront, I don't think this would be capable of playing uh, quite a few of the titles that were on the VCS. Yeah, so I imagine it's very simplistic hardware. But, you know, I think, you know, for Atari fans, we, we did talk last week that we, we know from what we've seen, they only sold about 10,000 of the recent Atari VCS. I've got a feeling these will be a lot cheaper and probably sell a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like a, a step in the right direction for them and obviously working with a company who've got a track record of doing successfully um, these kind of mini consoles and collections. So, uh, yeah, it feels like a step in the right direction. So we'll keep an eye on that. And if you want to read uh, everything we know so far, I'll link that article up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. A couple of really cool fan projects that we've seen over the last couple of months. Um, I don't know if you spotted this. Turrican 2 has had quite a nice upgrade on the Amiga, using some of the MS-DOS assets. Oh, God, the PC version. <laughs> the PC version's really good, actually. And um, this seems like a, a nice, well-thought-out update, actually. So you can play the uh, PC-DOS version on the Amiga, then, of Turrican 2. Yeah, and I think the, um, obviously, MS-DOS back in the day, um, I think the, the MS-DOS version of Turrican 2 came out later than the Amiga, and it had um, 256 colours in there, yeah, which obviously gives the game, you know, visually a really big upgrade. And I uh, guess yeah, someone's actually done, um, this is a, an unofficial fan project on uh, sonicslothgames.h.io. Um, it's called Turrican 2 AGA. So really, I mean, I've, I've read a bit about how he's done this. He's basically coded kind of a lot of the game engine from scratch, but and it's not associated with Factor 5 in any way. It's not for sale. This is an unofficial remake but basically he's took you know all the the nice graphics and the upgraded parallax scrolling from the uh, more advanced ms dos version from back in the day and backported that to the amiga the aga amigas so obviously you know the amiga 1200 and the cd32 had more colors than yeah the he, he does it in 24 bit as well which is a uh, re- mm. re- really interesting to see and um it does look coded really well like uh some of some of the options in there um the one thing that really impressed me was the uh, music improvements so um yeah you know amiga's always struggled with uh sound effects and I, I was music. i was gonna ask that because of the when it comes to turk and i've only played you know the console ports of it you know like mega drive and snes and stuff and it has such a good soundtrack so I was oh, curious yeah. how that soundtrack was. But it's, it's banging on the Amiga, absolutely banging. Yeah, it's Chris Hall's back, isn't it? Yeah, but because you've got four channels, um, mm. when there's sound effects and too much going on on screen and stuff, there can be like cutouts and stuff. Yeah. So I think they've improved that element yeah. of it. But the the music is like completely, oh, the Amiga music sends shivers up my spine. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. It, um, I mean, it's generally regarded as one of the best Amiga soundtracks, isn't it, Turrican 2? Yeah, and it does run on the A500 Mini as well, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. So, maybe that's called the A500. Really, you know, it can run Amiga 1200 games mm. as well. But, but you know, also, well you know, this games. needs that boost. So, you know, the A500 Mini has the extra RAM in there. Um, you're going to need 8 meg of fast to run this on here. You know, uh, the floppy version, you run uh, yeah. 2 meg uh, uh, fast. But still, you need you need that upgrade. You won't be able to play it on like a, mm. a kind of raw machine. But um, I, one thing I love as well is that the main sprite of uh, the Torican dude, you can uh, actually change out to the Amiga one. So you can have all the backgrounds and the enhancements and all the music and everything, but still have that Amiga sprite that you oh, used to. Oh, that makes sense because on the website, there's got the two different sprites running along and I don't know which, what, what was that? I didn't write, know why there was two. I like that. I love that, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there will be people that want that in there. And, I mean, he's done some nice, you know, modern enhancements as well. You know, two-button joysticks mm-hmm. are supported. You've got CD32 joypads. You can define the controls you sweat self, change the difficulty mode. There's a trainer built into it, too. There's, like, an option he's put in there to look down so you can see blind jumps. It was always, you know, something yeah. that catch you out in the it's, original Turrican as well. It's There's pretty amazing. I'm reading, well. like, someone says, like, how did you actually do this? And he said, I rewrote yeah. the code from scratch. Yeah. attempting to recreate the original code as close to possible by just playing the original and watching long play videos. So wow. he didn't have any access to the original source code. He just rebuilt it from long plays. And I just think that's wow. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, yeah. that is a big wow. That's the only way to describe it. Really impressive. So that's right. You can download that for free as well, you know, if you want to play that on your uh, your A500 Mini or your Amiga 1200. So, uh, yeah, top marks for that. Actually, while we're talking to fan projects that are impressive as well, this is just a very basic demo. Have you seen Star Fox running on the Sega Mega Drive? I have, and I, I can't quite get my head around it. So this is from, uh, um, I'm going to say this wrong, Ga- GasGas68K, who's got a version of uh, Star Fox or Star Fox. Um, running on a Mega Drive, um, apparently on original hardware. So it's missing quite a bit. It's missing quite a few enemies and stuff like that. But in terms of graphically, you know, kind of in the frame rate and everything like that, it looks fine, doesn't it? It looks great. Bearing in mind that the the Super Nintendo version relied on the power of the Super FX chip, yeah. chip and you haven't got that in the Mega Drive. Yeah, yeah. That to me is pretty jaw-dropping how well it's running. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it even states here, you know, no, there's 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 nowhere uh, Super FX chip here. It's all you know Mega Drive Genesis baby. Like I say, lack of enemies at the moment, so it's kind of like a concept. The big story is the frame rate is running great. Yeah. I, I guess no. like the particles as well. They won't have so many particles and stuff. Like from the video that I'm seeing, there's not like you know when you when, when there's explosions, bits come off and stuff like yeah, that. You know that's going like to be that. really really hard to do. Yeah, um, it's. it's it's kind of like the uh, just the basic ship quite low down at the moment. Yeah, it's just, you know, kind of like the first level with the little intro. Like you say, the ship kind of flying along, one or two enemies knocking about, and then the, uh, you know, kind of all the buildings, the pillars and stuff are coming in, and you can shoot and everything like that. So, you know, if you were to kind of glance at this and look at it, you'd just be like, yeah, that's Star Fox, and it's just... You wouldn't, mm. you wouldn't question that it was Star Fox. Yeah, the draw on- distance seems a bit short as well, but you've got to compensate for, you know, yeah, yeah. not having <laughs> that uh, that Super but FX it's, chip it's, in there. It's, you know, yeah. certainly not far off the Super Nintendo at all. 
know really, what, what's really amazing impressive. though as well? I love it when you see games that were kind of system sellers yeah. for certain consoles back in the day running on their kind of arch rivals. <laughs> yeah. It's also a bit bizarre, isn't it? You know, if you see like Sonic running on like a Super Nintendo or something, it's like, what? Yeah, 32 so, late uh, years later, but it's still impressive yeah. to us. <laughs> <laughs> still blows my mind. So uh, it proves that, you know, maybe blast processing was up there with the Super FX chip, you know, it's got it built in the Mega Drive. <laughs> so uh, that'll start a few wars. So if you want to check out that so far, and obviously uh, a story that we'll keep an eye on, I'll uh, put both of those in our show notes too. And now let's talk about um, a little update to a story that we covered before Christmas. And this is the MSX Zero, a handheld computer. Now we've had a, a first look at this. Yeah, so they're, they're reintroducing a range of these MSX uh, machines. It's actually by the MSX co-creator. And um, this is the handheld version. It looks quite interesting. Um, this is something that I've not seen before. And um, it's uh, it's based on a microcontroller um, for for the Internet of Things. So, um, you know, the Internet of Things is this kind of have the whole world connected, have like your doorbell, your light bulb and all of that kind of connected. Oh, tell me, if my internet goes down, I can't turn my lights <laughs> yeah. on. Well, this MSX is based on this kind of stacking system, which I found quite an interesting concept. Um, we've only seen a, a picture of it um, and it's uh, called M5 Stack. I've not really heard much about it until I've looked into this, but um, it's it looks like a Game Boy, but the options are interchangeable. So it reminds me of something you'd see in a warehouse more, you know, like a stock control. It does look industrial, doesn't it? Yeah. Once, once upon a time, there was a summer when I was 18 and I did stock control overnight in warehouses. And now you've just said that it's all completely back down. It looks just like it with the keypad. You're not wrong. Did they tease you in the warehouse? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. He was trying to play Tetris on it. That's why. No, Um. this, this, does look interesting though, because um, these modules uh, apparently have all different functions in them. So let me try and describe it. It's it's kind of like a, a Game Boy mixed with a, a modern thermostat <laughs> or, or something that would work like wirelessly. And then you can pull out the keyboard, and now the keyboard in it looks, I don't know, it doesn't look like the most comfortable thing, does it? No, very, very label maker or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, but it's got like USB-C power at the bottom. And then you've got another M5 stack unit, which is, um, it's got the D-pad A and B start and select as well. So you can rip that off and then put it in. Um, it reminds me of a console, a uh, handheld device that I used to have years ago called the Pocket Chip, yeah. um, which was kind of this concept, but um, you'd build it yourself. So they kind of gave it and they said, if you want speakers, you open it up and you install your own speakers. And the keyboard was awful on that, but people used to like 3D print overlays on it and stuff. Um, this looks really basic. Uh, looking at the kind of commands at the top as well, it does look like they're just using the industrial unit. Um, I was looking at it. Interestingly, it has um, a free access gyroscopes in there as well. So, okay. So that might be able to be used within like the gaming and stuff. It does look like an interesting concept. And uh, I guess, you know, the MSX, it's like some people used it as a computer, some people used it as just a gaming machine. So I guess having this keyboard and this uh, swapping functionality, I can just imagine, though, going on holiday and being like, oh, man, I really need my keyboard to get to save this game or 
Something like that, and I've left it in the car or something like that. Using a text adventure on it on the beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, though, because yeah, the MSX, you know, is a range of computers, really, so not having, you know, the QWERTY keyboard on that, that would limit it quite a bit. But it is cool that you can kind of just swap it out for what it's really a D-pad, isn't it? You know, you can take the keyboard out and interchange it for when you're doing some hardcore gaming on it. Um, yeah, I've got to say, I don't think it's the most attractive-looking thing in the world. It is very industrial. It's very prototypey at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it might change, but I think, you know, having basically a handheld MSX is very cool. You know, the MSX is not something that I've had a lot of experience with. I think the closest day ever came, I had an MSX emulator on the Amiga back in the day that I, you know, I used to load up a few games, but not having any kind of references to how they ran on the original hardware. I wasn't sure whether it ran very well or not, but it's definitely a platform that I've always had a bit of inter- an interest in. So, um, yeah, if the price was right, this could be something. It's that pretty fun, this M5 good. stack thing. I'm just looking into yeah. it at the moment. You can get cameras that you could add on there, video cameras, but also you could add it onto a robot. So you can have a, a robot with wheels, um, you know, that goes around the house. <laughs> so you could maybe get your MSX, plug it into a robot and then game with it like that. Who knows? You know, there's... A uh, load of possibilities using this system. Uh, it seems the camera sounds very cool. Yeah, as well. well thought it's out, a, you know. So yeah, nice little update on that. So we'll keep an eye on it um, and all the rest of the stories as well. You can find the mini show notes each week, and I put them on our website at theretrohour.com. Quick reminder before we talk about this um, PlayStation Three emulator update and our special guest James Shell coming up in just a moment. The reason the Retro Hour comes out every Friday is that thanks to you, our wonderful community of patrons who support the show allow us to keep bringing out new episodes. And I mean, you did mention that it's been our, our seventh birthday in the last couple of weeks. That does mean all of our costs are due this month. Website hosting, renewal, audio, all of that comes out this month. So um, a very good time. If you can um, support the podcast, it all really helps us out. And of course, we're not all take, take, take. We give a lot back to our community, don't we, Joe? We do try to give back. So uh, every month we do do the uh, retro hour after hours, which we've now done 29 episodes of, I think. Which yeah, is just 30 coming up. 30 I think. Yeah, coming up, big free hour coming up, uh, which we'll be doing at the end of this month. Um, you know, usually we kind of give a bit of an insight on kind of like on our lives and our opinions on, you know, our favourite consoles, favourite games for systems. Um, we go back, back in time and kind of discuss years and the highlights of like, you know, some years in the 80s, the 90s. We covered the 2000s for quite a while, which was really fun. And then, of course, one of my favourite things that I like to do with the patrons which I like to do with my friends, if you will, is our hangout that we do on Google Meets on the final Sunday yep. of every month. So we'll be doing that on the 29th this month where we kind of have a virtual hangout. We all have a bit of a drink. And we all just kind of talk about retro stuff, talk about what we've all been up to, showing off you know, what we've been buying. Um, I really love it when we had an instance once where somebody actually had a motherboard from a system and they didn't know what it was. And we all sat around discussing it, trying to figure out what it was. For yeah, ages. I like when uh, someone says like, oh, I used to work in that job in the 90s. And then oh, suddenly yeah. there's like two people like, oh, yeah, we were both engineers in networking or something. And yeah, exactly. the, the, the chat goes into like total obscure directions. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. 
And I was chatting to one of our patrons there, Rich, who um, he came on to show us his Games Master Golden Joystick once, and he heard us talking about the new one last week, and now he's just bought a new one. Nice. So he said he's going to hop on end of the month to uh, show that off he, as he's well. Oh, you managed to sell your new one then, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a new one. Yeah, I mean, it's just a great little community that we've got surrounding this show, and uh, we'd love you to join us as well. And of course, for supporting us on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro, and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. <laughs> Hall of Fame. And let's induct our latest members into the Hall of Fame. Welcome Akugu. And Neil Toms. Who both backed us on Patreon over the last week. Your support is massively appreciated. And if you'd like to do the same, all the details to support us on Patreon are on our website at theretrohour.com. And actually our patrons get a couple of exclusive news stories every week as well. So those are coming up very soon. For everybody else, um, let's talk about this. Now this is um, a PlayStation 3 emulator that again, I mean we kind of talked about the at the start of the show, that the 360 is kind of getting into retro now. Obviously the PlayStation 3... Only a few years away from being 20 as well, even though to me, I was showing you guys the other day, my missus works in um, in a charity shop, and she came home with a new PlayStation 3 that she'd, um, well, an old PlayStation 3 <laughs> that looked brand new, actually, that had been donated to the shop, because she's not allowed to sell electronics. And she said, well, I know someone that would like this, and the guy's like, yeah, I just want rid of it. She brought it home. And to me, getting a PS3, I mean, it was one of the fat 80 gig PS3s, which, you know, I've already got one, but not the most reliable systems in the world. So it's nice to have a backup, but it still feels like, you know, a premium kind of new console. I've I've never used one, so it's totally modern to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, yeah, to me, it's it's still, it plays Blu-rays, it's got wireless controllers, it's HDMI, you know, you've got 1080p games on there. And a lot of the games, I mean, you think back, I mean, a lot of the games that we get now are really just a lot of kind of updates and re-releases of games that originally came out on like the PS3 and the 360. And how many times has Grand Theft Auto 5 yeah. come out now? Like three I generations of Big GTA 5, The Last of Us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so many of these games are getting re released and stuff like that. Because, because one prediction I mean, quickly. I'm just going to do a quick prediction. GTA 6 will drop this year. That's my prediction that's oh, going to totally I fail. Know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to do one in January. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, that's the thing. The PlayStation 3 still feels kind of, even though, you know, people are considering it, moving into retro now, still feels like, you know, a comparable modern gaming experience. So the fact that there is now a pretty decent PlayStation 3 emulator, that at this stage, this is the update, that it can now boot every single PlayStation 3 game. Now, this is an emulator that's been around for a while. It's called um, RPCS3. But obviously, emulating the PlayStation with its cell architecture, it was quite a complicated machine. I think PS2, the the emulation seems great, and the PS2 emulators are so powerful with all the extra features you can add in there and upscaling and stuff like that. I guess, yeah, you're right, the cell cell processors must have been a bit of a headache to kind of, um, you know, get your head around for emulator the developers. Well, that was one of the things that, you know, when the original PS3 came out, nobody thought it was going to be a success because obviously it was priced a lot higher than the 360. But a lot of developers were looking at it like trying to get their head around the architecture. It's like it PowerPC multicore, isn't it? It's a really weird yeah. kind of uh, architecture. Yeah, and it was kind of designed for, weirdly, I've kind of been, when I, when I got my new PS3, I've been watching a load of PS3 documentaries and videos on YouTube. And there's one really interesting one talking about how, you know, the PS3 has definitely become a fan favourite in the retro community now, but originally it wasn't. And it kind of talks about all the, the complexities and the cell processor, how it was 
really made for a lot of kind of industrial use as well as gaming and, you know, supercomputing, really. So it's cool that they've got this um, emulator that now can boot at least all of these games. Now, they're saying that um, it's not going to run all of them flawlessly, yeah. but I think it is a decent number, though, they've, they've got Yeah, so I was going to say boot is the, uh, the key word there. So when I first saw this article, I thought it meant, you know, I kind of read it and was like, oh, my God, like 100% of the PS3 games can it be emulated now but what they're saying is it, it, it like you say it's booting them up so as it stands 67.98 percent of the games are completely playable and can be completed with no performance issues or game breaking glitches um and i'd like to point out as well i don't know what the size of the ps3's game library is but i imagine pretty huge you know kind of by that generation i'm pretty sure consoles are in the kind of like 10,000s games you know like tens of 2,561 how many games, was it 2,000 uh, 2,561 oh okay a lot less yeah. than I thought in game 28.59% uh, games can e- either can't be finished or have serious glitches or insufficient performances um, 3.42% of the games that display the image but don't make it past the menu but then 0% of the games display a black screen and 0% of the games do not initialize so pretty much what they're saying is almost 70 percent of the games are, are completely playable and you know yeah which is good which is that's, really that's good. a good yeah. metric yeah and that's because i mean the ps3 a complicated machine to emulate but i think having nearly 70 percent of the library playable on a pc emulator i love the fact as well that so far they've been left alone by sony so far by the looks of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> haven't done a nintendo because um yeah I, I did see i mean it mentions in this article on game rant that you know um there was a Steam Deck video showing Switch emulation, which, you know, there are some good Switch emulators out there. Don't take us down, Nintendo. But Valve actually yeah, deleted that video showing it because Nintendo's lawyers are straight. Yeah, I think yeah. emulating um, a console that's currently on sale is a bit yeah, more risky than one better. that's uh, uh, quite old, you know. And we keep hearing these rumours that, you know, PS3 emulation's coming to the PS5, you know, and that's something that keeps being talked about, which would make sense. Because, I mean, at the moment, that is one reason that I actually have still got my PlayStation 3 hooked up but, you know, my Xbox One consoles aren't because, you know, my, my Series X can play all the, the back catalogue and a lot of the 360 games. But obviously that's a big problem for um, PlayStation fans. You know, you really need the the older system still set up if you want to play those games. But actually this is a great way, you know, if you're going to be able to play 70% of the library on your PC, I think that's a pretty good um, compromise. So, uh, yeah, definitely worth um, checking that out if you've got a PlayStation 3 collection and uh, no way of playing the original games again or you want a bit of nostalgia or if you like ravi you know you've never played a ps3 you just want to kind of yeah. check out some of its library um a really good way of doing it so uh, now i need like a that. pc <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've only got a mac yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that it's always something isn't there ravi so uh yeah if you want to check this out the emulator is called um, rpcs3 and uh, i'll link up this article in our show notes as well now, just one quick story before we uh, chat to James Shall, our special guest. Obviously, social media is uh, one of the biggest things in the world today. Um, it's really depressing. You know, I work for a company where I, I do a lot of social media management. I have for a long time. There's a girl who works with us who's, um, I think she's 22, and she referred to Facebook the other day as a boomer book. And she goes, oh, it's weird to, to take this job out to sign up to boomer book. Because, you know, she's under 30. No one under 30 uses Facebook. My wife actually said yesterday, that you know who's 34 now you know so she's she's not under 30 but she said she has come off instagram because she doesn't like it and she only uses facebook now <laughs> and i was like oh god we're old but yeah and even you know we, we've had stuff like you know ravi's been off facebook you don't use it that i much. don't I use, use facebook i don't use any of them 
uh, Twitter, yeah. none of that anymore. Um, maybe Discord. Discord's very nice um, because it feels a bit more like IRC or a forum. But um, this one that we're on about Mastodon, I have not got a clue about it. And to be honest, not really a fan of social media anymore. Um, it's just people moaning, isn't it? <laughs> well, this had been there was a bit of a mass exodus off Twitter when Elon Musk took over it, and you know a lot of people were kind of looking for a new home. Um, but this is actually quite interesting. Now I've got a Mastodon account. I haven't used it all that much, but I was actually talking about it on our Discord. What, what's it like? With a few people. So really, I mean, it's the interesting thing I think for retro fans is that it's really you kind of you host your own server. So really, in many ways, it's a bit like a bulletin board. Okay, but do you get like hammered if your server gets really popular? <laughs> do you have to pay? Uh, I'm not too sure about that. How you host the servers or anything? That's all a <laughs> the, little bit. The name, me. the name, always makes me laugh because it sounds like a Depeche Mode song or something. Mastodon. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's kind of something that's very hyped at the moment. You know, it only came out in November last year. This platform publicly, I think it's still invite only. You've got to kind of apply for an invitation. Um, I've spoke to a lot of people. I said I've got an account. I've logged in, looked at it. That was it. Really, you've got to pick a server that you join. But actually, uh, the servers can be interconnected. So either you can run an independent server or you can connect it to kind of other ones around the world. Okay. So kind of like, you know, yeah, Fido yeah. Networks back in the day with BBSs, I guess. But this, um, the reason it's of interest to us is that now you can run a Mastodon client on MS-DOS, which I think is very cool. Now, this is a project which is called um, Dostodon, and it's by um, a guy called uh, Superloo, who's put this on GitHub, because that's one thing about Mastodon. It's an open source okay. platform. So it means, you know, stuff like this can be easily done. You know, there's no kind of problems with doing it. And this actually runs on real hardware. And obviously you're going to need a, an, an old PC with a, a networking card in there. And they're saying that really this requires a Pentium 133 or faster. You need 32 megs of RAM as well. So quite demanding for MS-DOS, actually. I mean, you're not going to run this on a on a 386 or a 486 by the sounds of it. But um, you can check out some of the screenshots in here as well. And it's definitely got that kind of old school kind of ASCII look to it. I think it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. It does need quite a powerful machine to do this. Um, but also it needs JavaScript as well, which uh, yeah. I was thinking, like, oh, could this be done on the Amiga or something like that? I was like, not with the Java support on the uh, on the Amiga. So this looks like it's a, a very DOS thing. But cool that it can run on uh, old hardware as well. I find that really cool. And it runs within, you know, the command line of DOS. Yeah, it is very good. And, you know, I'm looking through the the kind of general and the limitations and stuff in the GitHub as well. By the sounds of it, it is quite complex to get it kind of up and running. And there is going to be a lot of waiting, you know, for it to do stuff. Of course, it's there. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of limitations, like two-factor support's not enabled. You haven't got SSL certificates. Or oh, that kind of okay, thing, so, yeah. so maybe you could use your... Um what was it, the SX64 with two-factor? <laughs> and then you could have that next, yeah. <laughs> next to yeah. your DOS Mastodon account. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and there's no emoji support or anything. I mean, it's early days in this too. I mean, I imagine there is, you know, more stuff they can add to it. But um, I've got a Twitter client that runs on the Amiga, which, you know, I've, I've used to tweet a couple of times. It's not the most comfortable thing to use. But again, like a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast, it exists because it can. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of fun that somebody's doing that, and if you're into that stuff, then uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But um, yeah, you're right. Without like um, the certificates and the uh, kind of um, you know verification and stuff like that, it's a bit like you're probably gonna have to run a sketchy instance without like 
you know, two-factor authentication. Go on there, basically, unsecure. But um, that used to happen a lot. You know, remember when people would go on the Amiga internet and stuff and they'd, like, rip out all of the um, security features just to be able to visit a website or, like, you know, they'd be on, on the wireless network and it would just be, like, a really small password or something like that. I remember using, yeah, like it was an old email client that I used and I tried to log into my Gmail and I had to turn all my two-factor off on that and everything as yeah. well. And Yeah, which I've since put back on. So, so be a bit careful if you're using yeah. this. I yeah. wouldn't use your main account. Maybe set a little burner account yeah. just to play with it. So, uh, yeah, very cool that it exists, though. So if you want to do uh, the hottest social media platform on your old MS-DOS machine, there is now a way. So I'll put that in there. All the rest of the stories, you'll find them in our show notes every week on your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, just a quick reminder before we chat to our special guest this week, uh, we do love reviews on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify, wherever you can leave a review. I was checking Apple Podcasts. I think the last review we got on there was back in November. Oh, wow. Yeah, it'd be good to have a few new ones if you can, guys. That would really help out. Yeah. Give us a little five-star rating on there if you can leave a few nice words. That always helps us get in front of new people as well, pushes up the the podcast charts, makes new people see the show. So if you do get a couple of minutes and uh, you'd like to support the show, that's a good way of doing it. Leave us a nice little review on your favourite podcast app. And enjoy this week's special guest while you're doing it, talking about remaking and updating classic games, bringing back franchises from back in the day, a few retro game store memories as well, with James Shell, our special guest, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the best bit of the show when we welcome on this week's very special guest to get some stories about their time working in the industry, the incredible games they worked on, and you know, everyone's got a different story. And actually, today we're really excited to hear some stories about being the marketing manager and VP of digital distribution at Sega, Secret Mode Limited. You remember that Zool Redimension game that came out last year, and some memories of game shops in Britain back in the 90s with our special guest. James Shell, welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much. Good, good to be here. Excited about the next hour. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on and uh, taking the time to do a bit of reminiscing with us. And um, I know you, you've listened to the podcast before, uh, so you kind of know how this works. Yeah, <laughs> so, definitely. Uh, you guys helped me through lockdown. Um, you were one of the choice podcasters. I was walking the empty roads of, of Britain um, as we couldn't do anything else. But yeah, you're definitely a podcast of choice. Know your voice as well. And uh, I certainly got some hints and tips on setting up secret mode from from many of your esteemed guests. Fantastic. Well, um, obviously, we'll get into Secret Mode because a uh, huge fan of the work you've been doing there. But kind of going back to day one, I mean, to kind of, we always like to get a bit of, you know, the geek credentials of our guest and find out kind of where it all began. So, I mean, do you remember what initially got you into video games and kind of where it all started for you? Yeah, definitely. The, the, the passion came, I think, my dad brought home a Pong variant in the early 70s. I'm a child of Pong. And it had a couple of... Um, couple of modes on it which were uh, volleyball and football and things like that and I remember thinking we could move stuff on the telly this is good um, and I, was, I think I was about six or seven when we upgraded to an Intellivision and I just fell in love with the Intellivision and my my mum and dad had just divorced I spent a lot of time um, with my dad and we just played ice hockey on the Intellivision over and over and over again and loved every minute of it minute of it and through there I remember him um, taking me to a video game shop. I think it was Hamleys, downstairs in Hamleys. We're, we're from Oxford, so it was a bit of a journey to go there. And he, he bought um, 
ZX Spectrum, and I can still smell the polystyrene, the pot, you know, on the box, <laughs> yeah. and um, Etik Attack. And then from there, I was totally hooked. Um, ST, Amiga, Commodore. And then I was lucky enough to get a job in a game shop, at which point I owned every console possible. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of the geek credentials is um, cut me and I'll bleed pixels. Well, you said you ended up um, working in retail as well. Um, like back then, Virgin were were huge with video gaming and stuff. And uh, what what was it like then? Was it was it one of these big mega stores or? It was Virgin uh, Game Centre again in Oxford, and it was one of the most exciting and brilliant times of um, um, my career. The people who worked there in that shop, we were a little family. And, um, yeah, I mean, I got the, got the job by, by pure luck, really. I'd been at college and I was, um, aiming to be a, um, marine biologist to work in marine biology. And the job I was after was going on a Greenpeace vessel and taking photograph of whale flukes, right? Cause each whale fluke mm. is, is individual. And, um, Greenpeace offered me a position. I was like, brilliant. Got, got a job with Greenpeace. This is, this is great. And then they said, yeah, you need to, you need to raise 35,000 pounds, please. And I was like, hang on a minute, how does that work? You give me a job and I've got to pay you the money. So I kind of was a bit um, miffed about that and, and was walking through the Westgate Shopping Centre in Oxford and someone was at the moment I walked past sticking up an advert in the window which said Shop, uh, um, Saturday staff required. And it was in about November 91 and um, someone hadn't turned up for work um a new starter and i wandered into the shop and uh, asked to speak to the manager i hadn't got prepared anything i wasn't dressed up uh, and the manager kind of looked at me and was like do you like games i said yeah and he said okay let's come out the back for a chat and we spent about two hours talking about kickoff two arsenal and oxford united at which point he gave me the job and he said yeah you, you're just you, you know i like you you're, you're a decent fella and um from there that was it i started off um dusting shelves trying to keep stock on the shelf, which over those Christmases, it was crazy to think how many Mega Drives we sold, how many copies of Sonic we sold, um, being involved in, in the Sonic Tuesday. And then you'd have days I remember distinctly, like um, we got a PC in the back of the shop and PC gaming started to explode. And then Falcon 3.0 came into the store and uh alone in the dark and then x-wing and wing commander and it's kind of i remember all of these these kind of big events and big games um and all the cool stuff that was around but virgin was an absolutely amazing place um to work they absolutely got what video games was all about just uh back in the early 90s we touched on like two strong memories that i've got of gaming then as well in, in stores um you mentioned sonic tuesday and that was the first time i'd seen that kind of you know we talked to Tom Kalinske on the show before and several people that were involved in that. And they were talking about how that was kind of the first kind of viral marketing campaign for video games, really, and that global launch. And then shortly after that, there was a Mortal Monday as well with yep. Mortal Kombat. Yep. I mean, have you got any memories of those events and what it was like, you know, leading up to it? Yes, yeah, so Sonic um, Sonic Tuesday, I remember distinctly. The Son Sonic, I think the Mega Drive games, uh, games came in boxes of 48 and we couldn't get enough deliveries. We were running people down to the... Um, to the uh, kind of stockroom warehouse, the deliveries were coming in. Um, I think Securicore at the time were doing the deliveries, and we were running running the the, the boxes upstairs as fast as we could because we couldn't keep them on the shelf quick enough, right? And we were running out of games, and we were running out of Mega Drives. And I remember 
that um, Christmas, the, the manager of, of Virgin was um we're out of mega drives and um it's like what we're going to do because because you know high, high ticket item 129.99 it was at the time we need some more mega drives um i know what i'll do i'm going to go and talk to the manager of dixon's because he doesn't know a lot about video games i'm going to go and chat to him so the manager went off um and came back and kind of said right i need as many as you as you can I've just bought for cash all of the mega drives out of Dixon's. <laughs> so wow. we went over to Dixon's and carried all these mega drives back and put them on the Virgin stock. And, and, you know, there's little things like that, which you wouldn't do these days because things are far more professional. Um, and then like Mortal Monday, again, I remember um, Mortal Kombat coming out and I think it might have been the SNES version. So it was a few months later. I don't think the SNES version shipped day and date. And Toys R Us at the time were doing a weird loyalty multi-buy discount. And it was a different manager, but he got in his car, drove down the Botley Road in Oxford to Toys R Us and bought all of their copies of Mortal Kombat and then brought back, brought them back to the shop. He'd bought them on a discount. No one else had any stock. There we go. I think it was fifty nine ninety nine at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Boom, out the door. It's, it's just really it, it kind of like... Um, uh, barrow boy behavior <laughs> um but it was it was just phenomenal being part of these these huge huge events um and as the 90s kind of flowed through the other distinct memory i have was road blasters coming in on mega cd and we'd we'd stick games um behind the till and we'd have a play of them in the morning and i remember seeing road blasters and just thinking what this is the next level right you know at the time i think i was getting into the, into work about seven we'd open at nine and i'd spend two hours sat behind the till playing tetris or wings on the links right and it was just these kind of things that we, we everybody in the shop was in early to play games because we loved it and that that love and passion for games i noticed very quickly that kind of knowledge of it really engaged with customers and people would come in mm. and say oh i've got streets of rage I like it. What else is there? As they were looking at a huge range of, of 40, 50 Mega Drive games. And you'd be able to pick up Double Dragon or Street Fighter 2, which it's not as narrative, but it's more, you know, it's combat. And I noticed really, really quickly that, oh, hang on a minute, this is a bit of a talent. And I know it sounds simple to your listeners. Of course, you've got game A and that goes with game B. But it wasn't something that retail, specifically video games retail, particularly had a lot of awareness of and i seem to have quite a photographic memory of genres and games um mm. and then kind of quite quickly they got me on to buying for the shop um which i did pretty well at i understood the local market that oxford didn't sell quite so many spectrum games as they did in liverpool um but we had different different kind of customer base it was um very tech heavy and i think i only made one bad decision touch wood which i overbought a Hagar the horrible on the Amiga, and that still haunts me to today. <laughs> that I bought twenty copies of that, and I think we never. You've sold still any. got copies at home somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> the they're garage, somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we were the only place to buy them. But there's just little things like that. And I suppose the other mouth-opening moment was I was in Milton Keynes, um, looking after that shop. Uh, I worked in Milton Keynes and Cheltenham, um, as well as Oxford and uh, other places. And that's when the PlayStation Video came in which I think it was Gorecki did the soundtrack of the music and it was um, all about Tashinden and the the T-Rex and Wipeout. And it was like the pre-roll of, hey, PlayStation's coming. And there was this clear sea change at that point of 
Sony were marketing differently video games and people who were coming into the shop were different in their behavior after PlayStation. It was like they weren't kind of embarrassed to be buying stuff as an adult. They were mm. much more confident to be buying video games as an adult. And it was like these, all these transitions across a really crazy time. Yeah, it was really, it was really, really entertaining. I think the worst thing about it was when um, I think some of the retailers decided to create their own radio channels and hey, it's Future Zone Radio and welcome to our store. Um, but they weren't radio channels. They were 60 minute cassettes and you would have to hear the same thing. Like over Christmas, it would drive you nuts. Absolutely. Looping all day. Oh my God. There are some songs, um, Oh, Sit Down by James, I can never listen to ever again because of the amount of, of time it was, it was kind of on repeat. Um, but, you yeah. know, you mentioned that that rivalry there as well, because I remember even in my town, we had Future Zone, which turned into Electronics Boutique. Yeah. WH Smith was selling games. I think our price was Boots selling games. Well. We had Boots maybe, as well. Yeah. Boots might still have been doing it by then. Yeah, we had three independent gaming shops as well. So, I mean, what was kind of that rivalry like? Because, I mean, it felt like there was a lot of places where you could get games from. Was it, was it like a fierce rivalry? Yeah, it was. We didn't like them. They didn't like us. Um, we liked the mm. indies, and we'd go and talk to the indies, because the indies um kind of knew that we liked games as well but some of the 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 smiths and boots and dixon dixons especially they were the baddies no one liked dixons <laughs> right and and um that was kind of it was it's fun it's fun rivalry to kind of think back now there was never any nastiness with it but you're always very pleased to have a customer come in and complain about one of the others um but we just we just tried to be a fun place. We allowed people to test games and play games, which I felt was very important. Was you know people need to be confident about what they're buying. Back then, you were dropping um, fifty quid on something that was based on a review or a, a press ad, and you know being able to put it on. We called them the Android, which was like a spider, big metallic spider in the middle of the shop, and give them thirty seconds or a couple of minutes to play the game. Just became really, really important. People then gained confidence. Um, See, I love that on a Saturday you'd have all the kids in like game shops and me and my friends, we spend all day in there, you know, like just playing games that have systems set up. Whereas now you go to somewhere like game, it feels a bit sterile. And they were man. cool as well. They had like, like you mentioned yeah. that big metal spider, they had like, you know, crazy features in them. Uh, I remember the Virgin in Nottingham had these like tubes that you put Vir like Vir messages in and it would fire around the building yeah stuff. the whole mega store virgin as i said at the top virgin really nailed it and they got it right and i think what happened was richard branson wanted some more jumbo jets so he sold virgin game centers um first off to um wh smith's r price that then got sold we ended up at future zone and future zone was such a horrific shock to the system um, with Virgin, we had um, role-playing games as well. So Call of Cthulhu, Dungeons & Dragons, not just video games. We sold so much Scrabble and Monopoly and stuff at Christmas as well. It was all about games as entertainment. And then Future Zone kind of didn't want that. But then some very odd things started to happen, and we realized the, the Future Zone wasn't being operated with the player at mind, right? Mm. And um, there was one instance where we gave the front of the the plinth over to some Cygnosis games some Amiga Cygnosis games I was at Cheltenham at the time and I remember looking at this range of things and it was like Walker and uh what's the game with an owl on the you're the owl and um 
it's oh, agony. agony, agony, things like yeah. that. There was loads of the Cygno- Cygnosis games. And I'm, we sold loads. And then the week after, they all started coming back. And I was looking at it thinking, every single one we've sold has come back. And this Cygnosis range had come in about a week before the business owners changed the refund policy. And the refund policy was no longer, you were no longer allowed to get a refund. You had to exchange for something else, right? Mm. Which I'm sure was illegal even then at the time. Um, And it put the staff under a lot of pressure to kind of um, deal with angry customers. And then I realized all of this stuff we're selling is faulty, right? And then the the rumor kind of came down from a top that, yeah, they'd done a deal with Cygnosis to buy a non-guaranteeable faulty stock off off Cygnosis, sell it, and then make people exchange it for something else. And this was such a weird thing, which upset so many people within the kind of staffing of Future Zone that a lot of people got very um, upset about, about the business and lost a bit of passion. We lost some key people and that's when the eb came along and picked up um future zone Mm. at that point eb were all about mums and it was selling the game to mums so we need to make the the stores friendly we need to make them less nerdy we need to make them um kind of a little bit more professional so we can entice parents in to buy games now that that's great and that's a good audience but what happened there was then the likes of game station appeared you know reaching out to that cool gamey audience again you know game station did a good job of filling that kind of niche so it's very very um challenging time having this this very vibrant feeling like you're with your people with virgin game centers then that that kind of changing into being a little bit more of a corporate entity all about money 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 i learned a lot from it um but it wasn't the most um pleasant place to work put it that way mm. well, you touched on the, the playstation launch as well and what a big change that was in gaming and i, I mean that era was very you know things were changing every six months you know we, we felt like we went from amiga and you know, Mega Drive and Super Nintendo via the, the Jaguar and the 3D, all these weird consoles that came along, yep. like, you know, Flash in the Pan. CDI and, came and out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> CD32 was on the market for like six months. And then, uh, you know, Saturn was coming along and the Super Consoles, Jaguar. Yep. I mean, it was a complicated time to be a video games player and kind of decide which console to back. Do you remember much of the buzz around the PlayStation? What kind of feel was when that was coming yeah, out? Did it, people we, we, have confidence in we'd it? We'd have, um, we'd have internal debates about the amount of space you'd give different consoles. And I think a lot of those debates helped those console wars get won and lost. Um, you know, having Saturn, I remember Saturn being moved to the back of the store and PlayStation getting three bays. And that was like, okay, well, that's Saturn done for then um and i think jurassic park had just come out or the trailer had dropped and we'd started to have much more of a kind of cool um marketing uh, and trailers coming from sony that would sit on the in-store tv and you just get crowds of people sitting around watching and watching those things i think the marketing teams at the time were really switched on to this audience in game stores to watch watch things there was a game called um epic i think which used 
hosts Mars and the planets as its soundtrack. And it had a video of this pot, kind of filled in polygon. It looked a bit Battlestar Galactica, a little bit Star Warsy. And they did an amazing job of selling the game, but the game didn't quite match what <laughs> the video was. So you yeah. had these instances as well of people crowding around tellies watching the latest thing. Um, but yeah, the buzz, the buzz around PlayStation was, was crazy. And as I said, it, it kind of changed people into being a lot less embarrassed about buying games. We used to joke sometimes that you'd get someone coming in and they kind of wanted a paper bag to take the game out with. I don't know if that was the early nineties thing that there was still a bit of it's still for kids when a lot of adults. Yeah, PlayStation felt cool though, didn't it? It was that clubbers audience and dance music. They nailed it. It was the right thing as well, because we, as, as a generation, We'd grown up with Spectrum, with Commodore, with Amiga, and we were now ready for something a bit cool. And Sony made an absolutely pivotal decision um, for the success of our industry, which was making it more cool. You know, Sega tried that with the um, um, the Go Fast. I think it was um, Daytona ad where the guy's eyeballs fly out. Um, mm. And that was... Um, kind of cool it was cool but sony came in and did even more cool they were trying to be cool without being cool yeah no they they weren't trying to be cool they just were cool there we go yeah they got that vibe completely right and yeah it's it's interesting that you talk about you know the the game releases and stuff because um you you work for a company called excitement direct and they were like dealing with imports as well which imports were a really kind of shady area back then i remember going to like independent stores and you'd see a lot of import machines and stuff and consoles before release and titles. And it was always kind of like, Oh, they've, they've appeared from a magical land far away. Yeah, they were, they were a very magical land far away or very close by in some cases. So I left um, future zone and got a job with a mail order company uh, out in the West of Oxford uh, called excitement direct. And we specialized in importing and, and, bringing in things like N64. Um, I remember those coming in. I remember them being delivered from Japan, the N64 console with um, pilot wings. And I remember taking one home for the weekend and was just blown away by Mario and and pilot wings and just blast dozer as well. Amazing. Anyway, um, and we just kind of find a niche that, well, we're filling up, filling this hole that other people don't seem to be. Um, We started shipping other games in and we started shipping games from inside Europe into the UK and then we started shipping some games from the UK into Europe when the currency kind of switched but it was all um it was all filling a niche now Nintendo approached us and um were a bit upset about the import business and um that managed to get us official Nintendo status so when um nintendo 64 released in the uk we grabbed a fairly significant market share because we're able to to ship them out um the owners also um were were chatting to we basically the way it works is we went to e3 when it was atlanta and met a guy who was exporting out of la and um he was selling us stuff he'd send us over a fax and we'd tick off what we wanted and four weeks later it'd turn up um and he got this new thing called um pokemon and they were pokemon plushes and we managed to convince the owners to buy lots of these plushes so we were selling 
um, Pokemon plushes online. Uh, at the time, this was mid-90s, and they were just doing huge things because we're the only place you could get them. You know, we seem to be right at the forefront of, of um, bringing those into the country. There's ourselves and Special Reserve and Gameplay, uh, which was based in Yorkshire, who were kind of the three big mail-order players at the time. Um, Special Reserve's one I remember from, you know, when I was buying games myself, I'd always go to Special Reserve because they seemed to have better prices. Um, but it was all about the, the the business then was all about buying in bulk. Could you buy in bulk, which lowered your cost and enabled you to undercut the retail stores who could not operate on the same level as you had because they had shrinkage and rent and other things. So that was kind of the way mail order um, worked. It, it, it's interesting because like mail order then moved into the like online space and um, you ended up working with Amazon. Um yeah, so a few uh, years what after. What stage were they in at that yeah, point? Were they still just doing books? Or? Yeah, they well, no, they just started doing games. I think I was an employee of about a thousand and something, and it was in Slough. And the um, this was early 2000, and I got a job with Amazon um, thanks to a, a, an industry a veteran who was working, I think it might have been at Microprose or Hasbro at the time, he was a friend of mine, and he, he rung me up and said, oh, Amazon are after a book buyer as it was then and um ended up at amazon and that was a really interesting place to work you know amazon has its issues as a corporation i learned a lot about customers and behavior and data and if you do things that customers like they tend to come back and that was something that kind of really cemented my um decision making and strategies is let's just be nice to the player and the customer and they'll tend to trust us. And um, Amazon was all about convenience. We did some things that were, (laughs) I'm not sure other people in the industry kind of liked very much. And it was a bit of a free um, pass. Amazon didn't give us too much focus. I think they were very much focused on books at the time. Um, They also didn't know too much about video games themselves. Um, Jeff Bezos is a massive halo fan and i always knew to kind of when he was passing to chat to him about halo um so that was would always get you on side and the his um entourage would always wonder who the hell is this guy chatting to jeff and why is jeff so excitable <laughs> um but it was just kind of knowing uh, oh yeah that's a thing I mean, um i was wondering yeah. like as well uh, you know there were so many online retailers that kind of just fell and and went with the uh dot com uh, crash yeah um and and amazon kept surviving why did you think that well happened? it was it was amazon starts with an a and that's for a reason <laughs> it's very um it's won amazon awards um we we won a couple of um uh, golden joysticks award for retailer of the year and i'm convinced the only reason of that is because it was a alphabetically at the top of the list and who <laughs> really gave a crap about a retailer when it came to the gold joysticks um so that that was kind of my decision making well reasoning on that one i mean couldn't be big-headed that it was down to us um but with amazon you had jungle you had a bunch of other retailers play.com really throwing a lot of money at um online retailing and amazon managed to stay the course it invested a lot of money in other things um but we also made great strides within um video games and kind of changed some things up um that video games was 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 kind of doing we kind of challenged the status quo um to to change 
um, the way people were interacting with games and stuff like that. And it really, really did manage to stuck out. I've always said, though, Amazon has got the size it is despite itself, not because of it. I think mm. I think it's just right time, right place. It's one of those things. It's got a home run fairly easily, and now it's going to be pretty impossible to um, knock it off the perch for any one other retailer. And if you're starting a retail company, um, start it with the letter A. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, yeah. Take away from yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> Aardvark. That's it. There we go. And you wouldn't be surprised that there are some companies out there called Aardvark. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> well, James, kind of moving forward a, a few years, because I mean, I want to get into you know some of the, the amazing stuff you worked on with Sega. Yeah. How did you end up working with them? So, <clears throat> um, Amazon kind of, I, I, I lost a little bit of the love for Amazon because as we moved forward, it became much more about data and less about the content and i think amazon itself became a little bit they were a little bit unsure about people who knew a lot about the product that they were working in they felt you might make some wrong decisions wasn't date were what you weren't making data driven decisions so it just became a little bit um misaligned with what amazon were trying to do um because i really wanted to get into the nitty gritty about the product and what what good games meant and we were making great strides at amazon but i just had a really good relationship with sega and um i saw a, a, an advertisement um for um product manager for um a forthcoming title from sports interactive and i loved the sports interactive guys played for, for football manager to death um um what what you know back in well since championship manager right and um yeah got the role and my my role at sega to start with was to bring football manager live um to the world and um that was my first kind of um role pretty quickly uh, sega was changing and sega had come off the back of a pretty turbulent time resetting after it decided to not do consoles anymore and um was kind of finding its way and um i remember one of the it guys coming up to me and saying look i've got to do this thing called steam and you're you've sold stuff online do you fancy doing it for me and from then i kind of took on steam and putting this as 2007 and then started to realize that hey this is a really interesting outlet and my kind of role transitioned from when football manager live shut down as a service uh, into fully uh, embracing the digital world working with on live working with guy kai and um right up until the point i left we would trying to figure out with all of the studios what was the best way of delivering content to players that the players had the best time they possibly could with the games um so it was really it was a really lovely lovely time i loved every minute of my uh, experiences at sega well interestingly you mentioned steam there because that opened up like a lot of extra models for stuff like updates and uh you know, DLC and stuff like that that hadn't been considered. Um, was this like an uh, extra thing that you mentioned to Sega and kind of got them a bit involved and realised yeah. they could add some longe- longevity into their titles? You know? Yeah. W- when I was back at Amazon, we were in this kind of war with the other retailers, the physical retailers, on how do we make our version of the game different to your version of the game? And GameStation and the likes, they were 
um, looking at T-shirts or they were looking at stickers or pens or anything that they could put with the game. And we were thinking, well, we can't do that. It's going to up our costs. We haven't got the storage. We want to keep super lean. And I asked one of the team, I think it was Sims, the Sims, and I said to them, can you carve out a piece of content that we can give away on an email? So it's a, a digital version of something. And we ended up getting a pink pug. So if you bought the Sims from Amazon, you got a pink pug. Um, it's just the color change. There was no, no other difference. And people went nuts for it. And we did the same thing with Lego Star Wars, where we unlocked one of the characters via email. So you bought the game, the game was delivered. And then, and then the day before or the day of the game being delivered, you got, you got a piece of content, um, which you just added your code in and you unlocked it. With Sega, I was looking at um, Total War specifically and working with CA, amazing developer. And they had um, Total War Empire just ship and there was loads of dlc in the plan for that and we just collaborated collaborated on what was the best way to bring out additional content now a lot of people will think you know dlc all oh, this is really bad you're carving out our game why don't you give it to us in in um you know all at once if i pay you 50 quid i want the whole game why are you cutting it out into dlc and the answer for that is really pretty obvious it's, it's like we we've developed the game up to this point we need to now pay for more developers or developers to come back to the project to make the thing that we want to make as dlc but we kind of don't know what you lot want as players so we mm. need to get the game released so we can see what you like so then we can start unlocking dlc the strategy will be okay the first two pieces of dlc will roughly know this is what it's going to be. But after that, we're going to be directed and driven by players. And you release a piece of DLC, great. That gives you another little bump on Steam, great, which grows your sales. And it just becomes this kind of really interesting ecosystem. And I think the kind of negativity around DLC has died off. I remember early in the 2010s, you would still kind of wince when you hear a publisher has shipped a piece of content physically with um code blocked off behind a paywall which you'd then have to buy yeah. later that was kind of like well is it but it's not it's not doing what the player wants you know don't do it that's bad practice and um we learned a lot about that we learned a lot about that and dlc and it wasn't something if you look at sega's catalog sega certainly doesn't hammer dlc it was always i felt done super respectfully of the player well, you mentioned about, you know, Sega's catalogue there, and they've got an incredible back catalogue. I mean, you know, as retro gamers, like Sega's like one of the holy grails. Yep. I mean, was there a focus to kind of look back at the kind of retro titles then and revive some of them? How did you decide kind of what to bring back and did you kind of assess what was there? Yeah, so J Japan were very nervous about going back and looking at, at older games. We had 1,016, I think, old IP and licenses which you could look at, some of which were locked out because of legal disputes or disputes with this or, or they just don't know who owns the font for the, the game or the music. There were so many different things. Um, and I think the first time we really looked at retro was Mega Drive. And I um, get got the some producers together and they kicked off a, pro a project where we released some Mega Drive games on Steam. 
and it was the Mega Drive. Um, I think it was Series One, and it was about five Mega Drive games. We sold them, may even be for seven ninety nine at the time. And I remember Japan contacting me the day after the launch, being very upset that they hadn't sold very well. And I said, "Well, we've got seven of these coming out, seven series." judge me when they're all out because I've got a plan. And um, we released these series of games over um, uh, about a, a year. And at the end ran a promotion. And I also ran the promotion on the front page of Amazon, which was, I think, buy 80 Mega Drive games for $9.99 or $14.99. Sega sold millions of Mega Drive games on PC now. And um, we also revisited them and created Steam Workshop elements so people can put ROMs up and fix things and play with things. And it was looking at retro in such a way that how do we differ from all of the main ROMs? Because if if, if mm. a collector wants a Mega Drive ROM, in the you know you just know where to point your mouse and you can go and find one. But how do we make it better, right? And those were the kind of things that we needed to do. Um, Pushed hard on things like Shenmue. Um, uh, Bayonetta was a wonderful success. Um, Typing of the Dead Overkill was one of mine. Um, it's those kind of things we just managed to convince the powers that be. And the more success we had, the more they were into it. Um, Bayonetta, for example, sold its full forecast in about 24 hours, which was pretty phenomenal. Wow. But we were mm -hmm. kind of told Bayonetta... It was out on PlayStation and Xbox. It was worth a £10 in the bargain bins. Um, but I could see a lot of people wanted the game and I was interested on PC. And um, we, uh, we put up a game on April Fool's Day, which was a version of Bayonetta with Flappy Bird. And it was kind of like 8-bit Bayo. And the audience went nuts, like, you're trolling a Sega, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> but within the achievement images we'd put in an ASCII code um, and you could link, link all the achievement images together and it gave you a URL in the ASCII code to a website. You went to the website and it had Bayonetta's shoe and a countdown clock. And when that countdown mm. clock reached zero, we put the game up on Steam and people went crazy because folks on Reddit found it and they were like, I'm the Sherlock Holmes of the video games world. I found this thing and they felt so special. We loved it because it was so much fun. Um, doing that with with players. Um, and we also launched Vanquish in the same way. We, we updated Bayonetta a few months later with a, a little tiny um, avatar image for Steam of the character from, from um, Vanquish. And when you put an update on Steam, someone's decompiled it before it's even finished downloading. And because <laughs> this was only 29K or something, it already been pulled out and people are, holy, holy moly, it's happening. And it's those kind of things I like to, we really like to play with at Sega. Yeah, just engage with the audience and don't be boring about it. We're, we're an entertainment industry. Gamers love gamers and let's, let's prove to people uh, that we do. You know, if we're talking about, you know, classic Sega titles mm. that have kind of found, you know, always had love, but actually in the, in the last decade, I'd say really found that retro audience that fell in love with it all over again is obviously Sonic. And, you know, I'm definitely going to ask about Sonic Mania and Sonic Generations, yeah. but I mean, it kind of had a bit of a strained relationship with some of the 3D titles. I mean, you know, infamously, the uh, the 2006 Sonic the Hedgehog game wasn't much of a fan favourite. Nope. I love Sonic Colours, you know, I enjoyed that game on the Wii, but then... When um, Sonic the Hedgehog 4 came along, I think I had that on the Ouya. Yeah. And obviously that was a return, you know, on a 
a console that you could play on your TV. It was on Xbox as well and PlayStation of 2D Sonic. So was it kind of a, a conscious effort to kind of take Sonic back to its roots? Yeah, so the, that the, at that point, the console division was being operated out of San Francisco and they had concepted and done and did Sonic 4. And Sonic Sonic was always a game that was either operated out of the UK or out of, out of the States. And I think at that point, it was being operated out of the US. The best thing to happen for Sonic wasn't just Generations, but also the racing games. They were phenomenal. Yeah and um, brought a lot of people into into the ecosystem. And then also being respectful to the fans of Sonic, and there's nothing as crazy as Sonic fans and passionate uh, as Sonic fans. Um, doing things like Summer of Sonic, embracing the community, getting, at the time, getting the right community people to talk to the community. Um, building towards Mania. And Mania was the point we really knew this is, this is a beautiful thing. Um, folks, mm. an absolutely beautiful thing. Well, let's talk about Sonic Generations. I mean, you know, that was an incredible game and that was a real celebration of, you know, 20 years of Sonic. And around that time, I mean, you know, the modding scene was really strong. A lot of homebrew kind of Sonic games were coming out as well. Tell us a bit about the background of, of, of that game from your recollection then, because, I mean, it, it kind of mashed together the best of 3D Sonic and 2D Sonic, didn't yeah, it? And, you, and was Sabre expecting it to do as well as it did? Yeah, well, you've hit that the nail switch on the head. between the worlds, yeah. You've yeah. hit the nail on the head. The, the people who really loved the 3D Sonic game really loved it. The people who hated the 3D Sonic game really hated it. Everybody kind of liked 2D Sonic. So it was, okay, how do we take the best bits out of the, the, the um, 3D version? I didn't have a great deal to do with it at all. Um, I remember being presented it and sitting down thinking, oh, we're doing Sonic properly. This is great. And um, it just really resonated. It did really well on PC. I think my discussion within Sega at the time was about bringing it to PC as well and not just doing a port. We needed to make it from the PC. I suppose that argument or discussion was one when you'd fly to Tokyo and you talk to the folks in, in Japan, PC to them was a bit confusing mid, mid 2010s. They didn't really understand the importance of things like um, anti-alazing V-Sync and, and, and adjustable resolution. You know, you needed to work all these things in to make sure that the people who really cared about the quality of the game on the PC felt rewarded. I remember one of the first games I worked on, and it just was kind of like a head slap moment, was um, Vancouver uh, 2008 or 2010. It was the PC version, and the PC version, it had a picture of the Xbox controller and it said press a to continue and it was flashing up on the xbox controller and i remember getting a customer service contact and the customer was unable to progress because they were pressing a on their keyboard and it wasn't doing anything and it was like one of those moments that well of course people don't think like us we think we know everything because we're here every single time Um, we know all about games we know about controllers we know what that means so we need to kind of make sure our games are built for people and the platforms they're going to be be playing with and sega really embraced pc at that moment um they really embraced it it's like there's this big sea change over in japan and um there's a lot of love for things like valkyria chronicles and some of the pc games that you've seen since then probably every pc game um from from now onwards will be super focused for for um for uh, Sega and Atlas as well. You know, I was there just at the end of the, the Atlas transition. So Persona and, and those kind of games being involved very early on and meeting with Atma, Atlas devs and um, 
business folk and just you know reiterating um don't forget about pc as a platform those are the kind of battles we had to fight i call them battles they weren't it's video games well, it's never a battle. I, I think like um that, that those fans modifying versions of games and uh you know for, forever they were always making sonic rom hacks and stuff and uh yeah. christian whitehead was like one of the totally amazing developers for that how how did he end up getting involved with sega and then uh you I know, think Sonic Se- Mania coming around. I think Sega approached him, which was what we were doing at the time. Um, Sega had a very different attitude to user-generated content to others, and Sega kind of embraced it, um, both on the kind of YouTube streaming um, as well as modded content. And as long as it fell within the rules and remit of what's decent and, and good, um, we would allow it to happen. So uh, I believe... Christian was was approached and and um, yeah, it's a cracking idea for that. One question that you might be able to answer because you know it's always been uh, <laughs> fan rumors and fan dreams. You know, you see it all the time. The amount of news stories we've seen, like you know, Dreamcast Two is coming out one day. <laughs> what was kind of the feeling yeah, that 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 in <laughs> Oh, we <laughs> well, we so we so wanted to play with that, but it was one of the ones that we felt it was disrespectful to our fans. <laughs> there were so many like April Fool jokes or can we call this Dreamcast 2? You know, we've got a sense of humor from from Sega's point of view, it's a publisher of video game content. Mm. And um as much as people would would love to kind of think otherwise that the world has moved on and it's streaming technology C- could you see a sega piece of hardware of course you can right sega do mm. do things we've had the sega um, mega drive minis and we've had um you know the arcade division outputs hardware but um dreamcast 2 was always uh, always one of those things and you have you have to be kind of careful of in jokes and laying things because sometimes the joke doesn't land as I found to my, uh, my, my, well, it became not much of an issue, but it was a bit of a, again, another one of these grimacy things when I was back at Amazon with a, ga- a game that I could see people debating and wondering what it was. And it was just an in joke and I never owned up to it. So it was a bit of a, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> it was a game called Monkfut, M O N K F U T, and it was listed mm-hmm. as PlayStation 2. And, um, some friends and I had a very silly um, sense of humor and we just came up with a name that we found funny. And I think it was like around the fast show and things like that. And um, one of my friend's nicknames was Monkfoot, F-M-O-N-K-F-U-T, <laughs> right? And I put it up on Amazon as a PlayStation 2 game to kind of take the mick out of him and sent him the link like ha 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 look at you forgot to take it down and then found it on a reddit post about missing games <laughs> and then oh finding <laughs> some more some more people back in the 2009 era i think there's some websites still up but certainly a lot of them have come down now um with forums with people discussing what type of game it could be and someone from sony getting asked about it and denying all knowledge and it's like the secret project you're like oh i'm so sorry it was just a silly joke and i bet there's some guys on twitter are like yeah i worked on that <laughs> yeah game. exactly yeah yeah <laughs> could keep it going right we could cut that last bit and just just between us we know and we could start maybe eking out some some fake screenshots or something well, uh, thank you for coming clean after all this time, James. <laughs> Stop looking for copies of Monkfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or put them up on, on eBay, you know, I'm sure uh, we can cobble something together. 
It so, was it wasn't the worst thing I did at Amazon in terms of the industry getting cross with me. Put it that way. No one no one in the industry got cross with me over Monkfoot. Um, <laughs> take two did get a little bit cross with me one year because we hit New Year's Day. We'd come in. I think it was coming up to San Andreas, but San Andreas wasn't announced. wasn't even a thing. It was a rumor, right? But we started to hear that, look, there's definitely another Grand Theft Auto coming. Vice City had been absolutely enormous at this stage. And I kind of put a guess together and I thought, Grand Theft Auto is going to come out in the next year. I'm going to put a product page up on Amazon and call it Grand Theft Auto brackets next version or next edition. And in the product Mm -hmm. description, it said, don't know when this is coming out. Don't know how much it's going to be but it's putting it up here at 39.99 or 49.99 you you'll guarantee a copy if you order it right and because people don't get charged um their credit card doesn't get charged at the point of ordering it gets charged when the game dispatches i thought well this is this is kind of fine so jumping the bit of a gun here but no one in the retail store can do that um, so let's go ahead and do that and just see just see what interest comes and take two um take two uh sales guys rung me up fairly quickly very hot under the collar that i'd kind of spoilt their launch and um hadn't nobody had said anything and my response was well it's rumored everywhere everywhere's talking about it we know you're working on it you said you're working on it um you know what do you want me to do and they said well can you cancel all your your orders, please. I said, okay, I'll cancel all 130,000 of them. At which point they asked me not to cancel 130,000 <laughs> orders. I bet. And we, um, yeah, we had a rather wonderful time with San Andreas, but um, it was just little things like that. Now, now I think back at, at them and put my kind of hand of shame over my forehead and think, what was I thinking? Right, just what must I have been like? My name must have been mud to these, um, to, to all the poor people putting together launch plans and marketing plans, and there was me doing something ridiculous like that. However, I don't think it affected San Andreas too much. No, yeah, that it did, that, right, that did it? quite well. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, you ended up starting Secret Mode, which um, is awesome company. Like you know, uh, Zulri, I mentioned we were. We were all over that, and uh, it's fantastic. Why why did you end up starting this? Sir? Yeah, so I, I kind of left Sega. Things were being th- things at Sega. It's not not that it was generating a home run every time, but it was it was um, fairly standard on on how to kind of launch games. I really wanted to get into the indie space and work with some different things, and you just get that kind of. It was it'd been thirteen years, and I'd loved every minute of it. Minute of it, and. Um, Sumar and I had discussions and, and they mentioned they were talking about um, uh, a potential publishing um, division with Sumo. And um, I left Sega and started with Sumo with a blank piece of paper. What do you call a publisher? How do you start a publisher? How do you get games? How do you produce them? How do you market them? And I had to get everything down on bits of paper and kind of listened in to you folks and heard lots of hints and tips on what not to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have come up with a a publisher that we think encapsulates and um, really delivers all of our our values, which is about um, quality and player happiness and inclusion and 
real fairness, um, we've had an amazing couple of years. Um, it's not been easy with the pandemic and, and the financial crisis and, and other things like that. But for, for us to launch Zool as our first game and see the, fee- the, the kind of player feedback on that, and then to continue to smash it out the park when it comes to Steam reviews, um, it's been phenomenal. You know, Eternal Threads winning Tiger Puzzle Game of the Year and having 10 out of 10 ratings in a lot of the press. Wobble Dogs has been consistently 98% user reviewed and a little to the left, which has uh, eclipsed uh, 100,000 units since it came out in um, in the, the, the back end of November. It's just been a really wonderful time, which has been um kind of a reward of that focus of ours of let's build something where we can ensure that the quality of the game matches people's expectations not just from a price point of view but from a marketing point of view um and it's been it's just been a brilliant brilliant journey zool was one of the first things i came across um because of sumo's connections with with gremlin sumo um ian stewart who owns the rights um to zool we, we had a conversation with that very early on and sumo academy um needed a project and i said well you you build it we'll sell it it's 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 fun, you know what great idea this is and rather than them creating um a version of zool that i'd seen before or let's say that another um developer might have take, taken it the students at Sumo Academy kind of disassembled it and rebuilt it up for modern screens. So they expanded the play area. They changed the difficulty slightly. So the original version of Zool, if you want to play it, is in there, um, minus the lollies, but that's a different subject. And the way the Academy built that and brought out a really lovely um, homage to, um, to Zool was great and it was a really nice starting point taught us a lot um really and it was nice to see Zool coming back as well because i mean I, I love Zool on the amiga you know back in the early 90s i remember that being like they're even advertising it as like you know the sonic the hedgehog killer yeah so uh you know it was great to see that game coming back and being reintroduced for a new audience and i, I love the upgraded graphics and the bigger play field so i really enjoyed um the way that Zool redimension played yeah, thank i mean you. are there any plans yeah, are there any plans to bring back like any other classics from back in the day that maybe some other Gremlin games? Um, not directly. There may be, there may well be Zool coming, more Zool um, to other platforms. Zool too? But I, I'm not going to confirm anything or deny anything, right. but um, I haven't cleared it with, with my um, wonderful PR team. Um, Fair enough. But, but Zool, Zool on another platform, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I was a fan to see to see that appear and maybe some more content for the pc one um as well we may have thought about some new cool things to add free to everybody who's already already bought it so is there anything you can tell us about this coming up at secret mode then anything we should look out for well, we've got some we've got some really interesting announcements happening over the first um half of this year and um we're going to be looking at um console versions of eternal threads are coming out um this year and that is a, just an amazing game built by cosmonaut studios up in liverpool um it's probably not had the exposure it deserves but it's uh, as i said tiger puzzle game of the year or a brilliant pc game uh, 10 out of 10 um quite a lot of game game journos uh, said it was their game of the year and that's um that's really nice to bring that to console 
Um, and yeah, there's lo- there's probably no announces that I can make right now. But if you if you'd have me back for five minutes, I can tell you about them directly. One hundred percent. Well, obviously, we'll link up your your website and your socials in the show notes as well. Um, if people want to keep an eye on it that way too. So uh, yeah, best of luck with um, twenty twenty three. A really exciting company and uh, exciting titles that it sounds like you're working on, James. And uh, we look forward to hearing more when you can tell us. Yeah, thank you very much. I look forward to hearing more wonderful guests on the uh, podcast. <laughs>